Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Today with me is Robinson Meyer. He is a staff writer on climate, science, and technology for The Atlantic. Uh, he's written a lot about Trump administration regulation rollbacks and climate science and politics. And when COVID-19 hit, he co-founded the very famous COVID-19 tracking project, which is now the chief source of COVID data for the country, used by the White House, Johns Hopkins, and most media outlets. And he's been on the COVID beat for most of the year, but last month he also launched the Atlantic Planet, which is uh, the publication's innovative uh, new climate section. So tons of interesting stuff to talk about from COVID-19 pandemic to climate change. Uh, thanks so much uh, for joining me today, Rob. Absolutely, thank you for having me. Uh, and also co-hosting this interview with, with me is uh, Sally Meyer and Neil Reddy, two members uh, of our Policy Punchline team. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having me, Tiger. Uh, Rob, why don't we uh, jump right in so we, we can start the interview with the, I guess, very big generic question that, that's probably on everybody's mind for, for nearly the entire year. Um, for our listeners, would you mind telling us a little bit more about how how you started COVID-19 tracking project, how this came together, and what your assessment of the general situation is right now? Oh, man. Um, well, so um, the COVID tracking project started by accident. I don't know how to describe it because it was very intentional. So in late February, early March, there was this period where COVID was becoming a bigger deal. <laughs> it was kind of exploding <laughs> as a story. Um, and it was becoming clear that like, First of all, the Trump administration was not taking it very seriously. That was obvious. And then the second thing was that um, just a lot of like state functions that I think people expected to spin up given what happened in um, South Korea and like other East Asian countries as the pandemic expanded there. I think people expanded, expected some of the, I, I guess, let me rephrase that. I expected some of the state functions that we saw those countries do in response to the early pandemic to spin up here, such as drive-through testing, mass testing, um, a, a more serious attempt to try to figure out how much disease there was in the country, uh, how much virus there was in the country. And then instead what we saw was like in late February, um, this not happening, you know? So in, I, I don't have the exact timeline, but basically, you know, the first community spread case was detected, I think February 25th. Um, it was the last Wednesday in February. Um, we know now it's actually detected accidentally uh, that it was this Seattle flu project that, or that part of the reason we even knew there was, was virus up in Seattle is because there was a Seattle flu project, which um, had access to people's basically like test, like flu test samples, and then defied FDA orders to run a few of them through basically like homebrewed COVID tests. And that was how they found the first, some of the first COVID cases in the country. Um, but we, we didn't know that then all we knew was that there was virus kind of loose in, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, And I think as soon as it became clear there was some community spread in the US, we expected like testing to spin up. And instead, there were a few days where like the number of tests that the federal government was doing and it reported the number of tests every day at that point 
increased very slowly. And then actually that weekend, the kind of end of March, sorry, the end of February, beginning of March, the uh, Nancy Massonier, who's the head of uh, CDC Department for uh, Respiratory Diseases, um, said at this point, the, um, at this point, actually, states will be doing most COVID testing, and the federal government won't even be reporting COVID testing anymore. And so the government just stopped reporting COVID tests kind of the weekend, the last week in February, right at the beginning of March. Um, there was a lot that was going on at the, that time. I mean, I don't know how much um, any of you were paying attention then, but like every day, <laughs> there was something big and there were like three or four different bigger new things we were learning about the pandemic. Um, that was when there was a virologist that that weekend, that same weekend, there was a virologist named Trevor Bedford out in um, Seattle who basically looks at viral genomes and you can tell how many people a virus has infected. If you compare the genome from current people who are infected to like an earlier genome you have, you can tell the family tree and because coronaviruses like mutate at very dependable rates, you can use the number of mutations to figure out how many people have been infected. And he predicted that um, there were at that point a thousand infected people in Seattle. And, and because there was no social distancing, no mask wearing anything that was going to double like every, every six days, I think, or every three days. I mean, it was very, he predicted like that Seattle was just about to explode with cases. Um, that same day <laughs> as that week began that first week in march the market was crashing a bunch um and i really wanted to cover this and i didn't know how one of the decisions the atlantic had made is that we were going to report out the pandemic that the atlantic kind of does commentary and it also does a lot of reporting and we made a decision pretty early that like or my editors made a decision pretty early that we were going to do a lot of reporting uh, and i was like very frustrated because i was like well this is clearly becoming a disaster. <laughs> like nobody knows how many tests have been run. There's nobody knows how much virus there is. Nobody knows even like can states run these tests. Um, it, 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 it was just a clearly unknown state. And then I called uh, my colleague Alexis Madrigal and was actually like, um, you know, we, it's like Hurricane Katrina is about to make landfall and we're covering the US Army Corps of Engineers who built the, the um, seawalls that then failed during Katrina. Like we know, we can kind of see how bad this is gonna be, but not everyone understands it yet. How can we do something that makes people understand it? And I kind of convinced Alexis that what we were gonna do was split up the states and contact, each of us would contact 25 states and just actually at that point, ask them how many tests could they do a day? Um, how many tests were they running a day? How many, what was their testing capacity? It's also clear something weird was happening with the test. And then kind of at the end, we just decided to tack on like, let's also ask how many tests they've run so far. Um, and we started sending out emails and states started getting back to us and um, within 24 hours, we'd heard back from almost every state. And what we could tell was that, first of all, states only could run a couple dozen tests a day in most instances. And second of all, that only 
at that point that we could find, about 1,800 tests had been run. We could only confirm that about 1,800 tests had been run. And that was, by this point, it was like Thursday of this week. So there were more cases popping up. <laughs> like, it, people re were really starting to freak out. It was clear that the virus was like out. Um, Italy was starting to kind of fall apart. Um, it was clear that something had gone seriously wrong. And there was an assumption, I think, that like, because cases weren't being reported in the US, there weren't many infections. When in fact, what we were able to tell was that, I mean, this is like, we knew <laughs> was a very important number because what it showed was that if there were a low number of cases in the US, it wasn't because there were a high number of, it, it wasn't necessarily accurate. It was just that there weren't many tests being run. Um, that there were a low number of cases because there were a low number of tests, basically. Um, we published that story, that first story with our reporting on Friday morning. At that point, Alexis got a call or a text from his college roommate, a guy named Jeff Hammerbacher. And, and the roommate asked like, hey man, are you using my amazing story? Are you using my Google Doc? And Alexis is like, wait, what? What Google Doc? And Jeff was like, oh, I've been trying to collect the same testing data. This is literally his first, his freshman college roommate, um, you know, from 10 years or uh, I guess uh, 13 years earlier or whatever. He's like, I've been trying to collect the same testing data from states, but I've been trying to do it programmatically. So like scraping state websites. Um, and I have a Google Doc running. At the same time, I was in touch with my friend Aaron, um, who I've known for a long time, um, just through both being on the internet and kind of working in similar journalism circles. Um, and she was also really freaking out about, about the pandemic at the same time. I think this is Friday or Saturday of the same week, uh, right after we published our story. And she was like, yeah, I saw there was this call for volunteers from this guy who's like putting a Google doc together. I guess his name's Hammerbacher. At this point, I didn't even know that Jeff had been in touch with Alexis or that they were um, college roommates. I guess actually I did because I was like, oh, you should sign up for that or something because like he knows a lot, like you should just sign up. And Aaron was actually the first volunteer <laughs> to volunteer for kind of Jeff's Google Doc project. Over the course of that weekend, through a process that I was actually totally removed from because I was reporting, um, those <laughs> Alexis, Aaron, and Jeff came together and um, created COVID tracking project and started to bring in volunteers and and kind of what emerged is that Alexis and Aaron what emerged within the next few weeks was Alexis and Aaron ran the project together um just uh, eventually stepped back though he was really really instrumental in setting it up and and especially in getting a lot of the technological kind of background going and I was in this kind of role of like taking COVID tracking project work and and also I was in the slack a ton and helping Alexis but my job was almost to translate that into journalism on the Atlantic. Um, so we've been doing this now. I, I, you know, when we started, we thought that basically the government had this data, but th this data, this testing data was somewhere in the federal government and that it was going to get out, you know, that, it, that, that basically by creating a worse public version of it that was open source, we would kind of force the government or like 
you know, goad the government into releasing its own better version of this data. So for instance, when we found 1800 infections, sorry, when we found 1800 tests, um, which then I think a week by Monday, I wrote another story that was like, there were 2400 tests that were being done. When we, when we did that reporting, we thought, surely this is an undercount. And we made it clear, we think this is an undercount. We can only confirm that this many tests have been run. We were like, surely this is an undercount. Surely there's many more tests that are happening in the government that we don't know about. Um, and like by releasing this small number, we are gonna go the government to releasing uh, it's better number, which is definitely bigger. <laughs> and then every so often, I mean, that the second week of the project, like I think a kind of number got out from the government that was like in line with our data. <laughs> like it was like they were basically like oh well we think there's I think about a week after we started they said you know we think there's been 3,500 or 4,000 tests which was in line with our data <laughs> and it started to become clear that in fact if they had data it wasn't any better first of all it wasn't any larger than ours there weren't tens of thousands of tests out there that they knew about that we didn't and second of all, there was no data in the government. Like there was this data source we imagined didn't exist in the government. And as we went on through a month and then into two months, like we realized the government's not gonna come and publish its version of this data. Like we're it, <laughs> like we're, we're the version of this that exists. Um, I think it's still our view that the government should be publishing all of this data and that the government should be doing the work that the COVID tracking project is doing. And um, we don't want to run this forever. What we still, our, our preference remains actually that government collecting this data, um, the CDC or the NIH or HHS or someone. Kind of moving on to some of the more technical, like the technicalities of the, the project. Um, there were a lot of questions from like the public about fatality rate early on. And understandably people were very worried about this virus that just kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and then um, we saw a lot of extrapolation and misinterpretation of the data. And with this sort of role that the Atlantic has taken on with kind of this role that's initially meant for government, but the Atlantic kind of took over, like you said, um, what practices have you been using to like give contextualization for the data and um, also just like advice and um, sort of recommendations? Yeah, I mean, I should be clear that this is the COVID tracking project is within the Atlantic but the COVID track project is also very much its own entity. And at this point it relies on a, a large team, hundreds of volunteers to just create the data every day. Um, and I'd say, honestly, you know, most of the processes that we run um, are based around exactly doing this, trying to make sure that when people get to the data, um, first of all, that it, it does all kind of reflect similar, that a, a number from one state means something similar to a number from another state, which seems like it should, except that even when you're talking about something as basic as cases, there's actually two kinds of cases. There's confirmed cases, and then there's probable cases. And you, and the criteria for confirmed versus probable cases are kind of interdependent, but different. And there's three different things you can do to wind up with a probable case. Um, and states report 
just at the top level when a state says we had X many cases today. Sometimes it's confirmed, sometimes it's probable. Now, over time, states have gotten better, partly because we've lobbied them. But um, there's a ton of work, and there was work from the very beginning to make sure that states, that when we in, took the data into our data set, that like referred to like <laughs> within numbers, you know, that that a, a column within the data, all those numbers refer to the same thing. I think another thing we've done is um, tried to, I mean, every day when we publish just the top line case numbers, there's a ton of work that goes into thinking about, okay, well, for instance, sometimes states will report just 3000 deaths on one day. And it's not that 3,000 people died that day. It's that they, I mean, that's, that's, this has never happened exactly, but states will report thousands of deaths on one day. And it's not that 3,000 people died that day. It's that basically they just updated their data set with like a huge dump at the same time. Um, and when we, we add that data to our data set, but we don't necessarily always report it in the data totals for that day because it would just create a completely skewed sense of what was happening in the pandemic for people. It wouldn't actually the numbers we reported at the end of the day wouldn't actually um, reflect what would happen. Although often we also call out that say a state has reported a ton of deaths today or something. Um, I should say that deaths is not a great answer here. This usually happens with tests because states will report, will like back, it, California was doing this early in the pandemic. It would like suddenly just report 10,000 negative tests on one day. Um, and it would just be backlogged on the negative test data for some reason. Um, you know, I think another answer, answer is that we have just avoided publishing some statistics. So for instance, there's a lot of interest around test positivity. What we know is that test positivity can be calculated, first of all, in three different ways just off the bat. And second of all, if you don't have very clean data coming in from states, it can actually refer to it, it can wind up looking very different. So some states report testing encounters. Some states report unique people tested. So if someone's in the hospital and they're tested for COVID twice in one day, they only show up once in the data. But some states report number of tests run, which is if you're in the hospital, you're tested twice for COVID in one day, you show up twice or three, you know, three times, depending on how many you've tested. So if you can imagine what this looks like across a large populous state. If it, the state is a unique people tested state, then it reports that person once. If it's a if it's a number of tests run state, it reports it might report that person four to five times. Well, if you're looking at test positivity that takes the number of tests as the denominator, um, or it takes that number as the denominator, well, that number changes, that, that ratio changes a lot depending on whether you're looking at unique people tested or, or number of tests run. And states don't always report all of those numbers. So we can't even always compare those numbers across states. Um, this gets to be a problem because many states, especially in New England, have set some of their reopening, have set like who's allowed to travel to that state level guidance, like travel guidance around test positivity. And they pull that, they, like the official judge of that are certain websites 
that often pull from our data, but our data is not, we actually don't get, we don't intake data well enough. States don't report data well enough for us to be able to compare like with like. Um, and so you can wind up with situations where two states that actually are relatively similar in terms of how dangerous they are in the pandemic because of an artifact of how they report data can wind up with very different travel guidance. Now we've solved this by basically warning against test positivity as a, as a policy metric, and then also trying to make clear exactly all these little nuances and publish it on our website and communicate with states that might be adversely affected by this. Um, but I'd say in some ways, like our whole life, <laughs> the whole life of the project is basically trying to create the best data possible. And then also to not have the data be the enemy of itself. Um, so to tell people exactly what is knowable from the data and what isn't, and also try to figure out what's knowable from the data, like it kind of at the vanguard of what's knowable. Uh, Rob, I, just to, I guess, quickly recap, because this whole process seems so much messier than I previously imagined. So essentially when it's you and a couple colleagues and friends from the Atlantic and, and um, from other various sources, uh, recognized that COVID-19 was a problem. You wanted to collect data in an open source manner, reaching out to states. You put those data together. But what you later realized is that the federal government, the CDC and the states themselves, there was never a coherent database per se, or, or, or was that right? So, so when, when we go to the Atlantic's COVID-19 tracking project, when we go to Johns Hopkins or when we go to New York Times, we see these data, these are not released by you know, the White House per se saying this is exactly what happened across the United States. This is often pieced together by open sources and but individual it, states. It really depends. So um, if you go to COVID tracking project, we are piecing together data from all 56, I believe, US states and territories individually. So we go to, so for instance, hospitalization data in Hawaii or test data from Hawaii is usually reported first. I, this is so funny in the Lieutenant Governor's Instagram story. They often update their website, but he usually, he has like a talk he does. He does like a little Cuomo style, like PowerPoint with a chalkboard every day about what's happening with COVID in Hawaii. And usually that's the first place that testing data gets published for Hawaii. So a volunteer for Tract project goes to the Hawaii Instagram. Yeah. Hawaii Lieutenant Governor's Instagram um and pulled and and gets that number so we pull data every day from the, the 56 states and territories usually from their website or other official sources uh or from, i mean always from a website an official source um we corroborate it with a press account we um uh use or like we'll watch someone will watch a youtube of the state's COVID briefing that day. But every state is different. Everybody yes. is just piecing together information in it. Yes, now states have generally gotten better wow. basically because we've been lobbying them <laughs> At, or being, you know, working with someone, either working with um, folks at the national level or working with the states individually being like, hey, you know, this is kind of the best way to publish your data. This is how we think it should be done. You know, we think it's kind of ludicrous that we're in this position. This is not something that none of us are public health experts. We have public, you know, Alexis, Aaron, and I right. 
are not public health experts. Jeff is, if anything, the most medically <laughs> aware. Um, we do have really great public health experts working with us now. Um, and we have some great people on our advisory board. But initially, but this was just this is yeah, just us like, doing this. Yeah, yeah, or or volunteers. I mean, rapidly it became that volunteers came into the project and did these data runs, um, and I mean, the way that it works every day is that people come. There, there's a Slack room. People come into it, <laughs> like trained well, volunteers come into it. They check every state. They input into a Google Doc. There's another team that then double checks those wow. numbers. So, so we're recording this on November 29th. This is yeah. when this conversation is happening. Compared to more than six months ago, eight months ago, when this thing first, COVID-19 first broke out in March, uh, how has the federal government or local government's responses changed? Do, does the CDC centralize the data collection process now? Is the... No. I mean, the CDC doesn't publish... The CDC publishes more data and the, HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services publishes more data now than they used to. And HHS publishes a very good hospital data set that I think we think is fairly good. Um, they also publish testing numbers for the country, I believe. Um, but all that, much of that started in May or later. What? So we have the only data set that goes back to the beginning of the pandemic uh, at a daily level. And we also have the only data set that goes back and does it for states. Now, there are a number of data sets for cases. So Johns Hopkins has an independent data set for cases. New York Times has an independent data set for cases. And those data sets are county level, while we're only state level. But for things like hospitalization, um, tests, um, various other, uh, um, actually long-term care facilities like nursing homes. We have all that data at the state level, almost always going back to the beginning of the pandemic in March, um, or going back to March 5th. Um, and we're the only entity that has that, uh, yeah. So. It's, yeah, it's, and kind of, I mean, it's pretty shocking, right? Like you'd think this would be the role of the federal government. And in fact, like the role of the government, one of the oldest roles of the government is to provide data. I mean, like the census is in the constitution, you know, establishing standards and measures I think is in the constitution. Um, data gathering is like a very classic role for the, the government. And honestly, it's something the US government has always done really, really well at. I mean, like from a climate standpoint, it's kind of funny, the US has the best climate data hands down of any national government in the world um but boy we really messed this one up <laughs> rob i, I just want to say I, I think you really played your cards wrong you should have just sold all your you know initial data to hedge funds on wall street and, and you would have <laughs> i mean <laughs> this i mean I, I think we definitely know so i mean it's all it's all open source and like um so when people talk about data initially, sure it was, it was all this. pulling our data. Let me put it that right, way. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. It's like you, you are moving markets and moving literally our perception of what is going on. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different stuff here. And it's been an amazing project to be a part of. I mean, <laughs> there's, a, there's a point where kind of when you're talking about the scale of what it's done, it's just beyond anything that any individual one of us has done. And, and that's what kind of makes it so incredible.
Yeah, and to kind of like tackle the the source of this sort of incompetence from the federal government, I guess you can call it that. Um, so like in, in early March, you wrote that there, there was a lot of like obfuscation of like the, the early results by the federal government because of this lack of involvement by the CDC who like managed data accumulation in the past. And so can you attribute this to like a decision, like a conscious decision by the federal government or a lack thereof? And like, why do you think this has been such a poorly managed response in terms of the data itself? It's a great question. Um, to some degree, it's a question that I think we would still love to know the answer to. Um, however, you could argue the CDC has been the biggest disappointment of the pandemic. Just in terms of, I think, what people expected, how people expected them to perform and how they've actually performed um, in, in terms of what their historic role is and what their, how they performed now. In terms of on the data side, it's a great question of why this never spun up. I don't fully know. What I would say is that, and I want to keep learning. I mean, I have a Freedom of Information Act request out. Um, what I'd say is that the degree to which all of this comes down to really incompetent or inattentive management at the very executive level is um, pretty high. <laughs> and we saw this early on with testing, for instance, where the CDC and the FDA kind of got, got into a fight about which COVID test to use this before this is in early February. And it led to a delay in the rollout of the CDC approved COVID test. Um, there were also errors in the CDC tests, um, but whether that should have delayed the rollout is another question I'm not gonna get into now, but those kinds of interagency like head that, that kind of interagency headbutting does happen in the government, but that's reconciled like normally that's resolved because you have a White House and this is the White House's job is to coordinate agency response right and and coordinate federal response across agencies. Um, and make the bureaucracy kind of work and like we didn't see that now and what we did see is that in in instances, for instance, where the White House did take a personal interest interest such as. You know, we know that, for instance, like Jared Kushner um, was kind of in charge or was did play a big role in like trying to set up drive through testing sites, drive through testing sites in late March that ultimately like never really happened. There were only a couple of them nationwide, this like promised national set of drive through testing sites just never came together. Um, we know that when there was any kind of initiative like that, it was because of the White House's involvement. And then when it fell apart, it was because the White House didn't see it through. Um, so in this case, I think we have to kind of assume something similar. However, I'll say that, you know, the CDC tracks flu data every year. Like the CDC has an exceptional flu data database. Uh, and for whatever reason, that was never ported over to COVID. And, just a question that's never been answered for me that I've never been able to find out the answer to, but I'm very curious about is like, well, why wasn't this ported? Uh, you know, why, why not? Why didn't this get, why did the, why can the CDC track flu so well, but not COVID? You know, to, to me, Rob, it seems like uh, the CDC had the institutional capacity for these kinds of operations. Um, and the institutional failure perhaps was like not being able to ramp up its capacity. Um, but then it's kind of up to the 
political administration to determine the agility of those capacities. Um, does that feel like the right assessment? It's a great hypothesis. I think we don't know. I don't feel like I know. I, I think the CDC has had some real failures here. Sure. I don't know whether those failures are basically in spite of or because of leadership or because of some combination. The public health establishment has performed really well, but not like exceptionally well <laughs> during this. For instance, there's never been a at-home testing, right? We've never gotten at-home testing, like cheap, really cheap at-home testing mass produced. Um, just like we've never gotten mass produced N95 masks, right? Like there's no barrier legally to the US government. Theoretically, there's no barrier legally to the US government ordering the production of N95 masks for everyone in the US and then mailing them to our homes. If that had happened, it would be huge, right? Because we just all wear like the best kind of mask all the time. Instead, there's still a PPE shortage of, um, of that highest quality mask. Um, and there's now there's all these like equity concerns about access to masks, right? So like, why didn't that happen? Well, part of it's like the White House never made it happen. HHS never made it happen. It seems like some of the, it seems like Brett Girard, who's the testing czar in the US government is maybe skeptical of, um, of at home testing. However, the other thing that, and, and maybe just like there was political opposition to this, to us manufacturing masks or tests in mass, in mass because the US government ordered you know, manufacturers to. At the same time, maybe um, when I talk to public health people, they're a little skeptical of at-home tests because they're not legible, they're not countable in the same way that clinical tests are. And they're very worried about what people like getting positive results and then not reporting them, right? They, public health people like want to get all the data. Um, and I sometimes wonder, you know, do we not have at-home tests because, or do we not have at-home tests because like, um, there's a lack of political will, there's a lack of leadership from the White House who do not have, have at home tests because public health folks are kind of skeptical of at home tests, especially like American public health uh, folks. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, so somewhere I was kind of gonna go with this because you started bringing up these masks. You know, one thing we saw with masks was initially a kind of a discouragement for like, you know, private citizens to buy masks and use them. Um, partly it felt like because we didn't understand the extent to which it was airborne as opposed to surface-borne. Um, so, I mean, to what extent does the failure on masks represent an institutional failure versus kind of the public being exposed to the process of scientific discourse and discovery in real time? Oh, it's definitely that. I mean, I think there's part of this, I was talking with a friend in March and he was like, you know, I'm certain about two things. The first is that it's going to be really bad. And the second is that everything we think we know about this virus right now is wrong. Um, which is like mostly true. There are some things that have helped. There's three different things that are happening here. The first, right, is that we didn't understand the role, how much the virus is airborne. Once we understood how much the virus is airborne, then we also misunderstood we. I say we. It wasn't me. It was the public health subject, right? Like, there was also a misunderstanding about what cloth face coverings could do. 
And if you look at Dr. Fauci, he always makes this difference between like cloth face coverings and surgical masks. Like surgical masks really do block much more than cloth face coverings. But what we didn't understand was that cloth face coverings like cloth masks could do a lot of good. Um, the second was that, and you could say, well, why was that? And there's a lot of reasons. Partly it's that I think one thing we've learned is that like, like the American public health establishment is very reluctant to learn and very bad <laughs> at learning from the rest of the world. So like masks were immediately distributed in Taiwan and Hong Kong, I believe. Uh, and yet, and those countries like immediately got a handle on the spread, but this was like not ever like uh, American experts were very eager to chalk this up to things that weren't the masks <laughs> and, and very eager to be like, oh, that's just kind of superstition. The reason why all these people wear masks, you know, it's where it's like, it, it, it just was a misunderstanding. The second thing is that there was kind of a noble lie situation happening where, and Fauci has said this since then, so I feel okay saying this, where he also was discouraging masks because it wasn't clear that there were going to be masks for doctors. <laughs> so he'd like discourage masks because it was like, well, we need the masks for doctors. Now, right, was, Rob, but, but, but you, you've got to see the, the impact on the public perception of the institutions, right? About how Fauci, I mean, I, I guess you could say it's a noble lie or it's just a lie. You just didn't, you, you, maybe you should have been upfront with the public. I don't know. I, I don't have a personal- No, I think that's exactly right. I, think that, I mean, that's what I think we see now. And I, and I also think that like this example kind of leaps to my mind. I think if anything, Fauci has much better about this than other public health experts. Um, it's a clear example of this, but I think this is something we see every so often is that like, there is a tendency to come down on the side of what would be convenient or what would support. So another example here are border closings. Um, there's no data, there was no data. We know now because the New York Times says there was never data to support this idea that if you close your borders, you, um, you somehow can't keep the virus out. There was never data to support that. It emerged from the 90s when there was an epidemic that like spanned this kind of like very, I forget where the epidemic was, but it was in a region of the world where like there was a particularly kind of like porous border between two countries. And so they didn't want to close. So experts was like, it doesn't matter if you close down the border because it was like a TB outbreak or something. And they were like, it doesn't matter if you close down the border because people are going to cross anyway. Like, it doesn't matter. But this evolved through the 90s and 2000s into like border, border closings don't stop the pandemic. So then even early in February, what? Even though it actually does. And we should have. Even though it actually down. does. Early in February, there was a line. Now, crucially, not actually from government scientists. But there was a kind of line from like these like academic public health experts that were like, it doesn't matter if you close borders, that actually isn't what stops the pandemic, what stops the pandemic is X, Y, and Z. It's not true. Obviously, closing down borders stops the pandemic. Right. Now, what was actually <laughs> happening inside the government and the reason that we were unsuccessful in keeping COVID out of the US wasn't because we were doing border closings. It was because we were doing like the most ineffectual border closings ever. So, and, and we know now that like, scientists inside the White House, including Fauci, were saying this. Basically, like, you can't keep, what the Trump administration did was it closed US 
it it blocked um, uh, Chinese people from coming in, like Chinese nationals from coming in, but allowed Americans who were in China <laughs> to return. Well, guess what? Like, you know, <laughs> bodies right, with well, American passports are just as effective as having as as being infected by COVID as yeah, bodies. Well, but they should have done passports. this to quarantine people when they arrive for two exactly, weeks, like right. mother fields do, and do so for for Europeans as well. So yeah. But we didn't do that. So, so anyway, I think this is a great example of, uh, this is kind of a side point because I think a ton of what else has been happening in this pandemic is that we've been watching the scientific process at work. Um, but, and a really important part of this is like the scientific process is not just like we're finding out data. Like a great, okay, so sorry, I'm just like talking, but like a great place where we watch the scientific process at work is um, this idea, did the virus, uh, mutate to become more contagious. And at first people were like, probably not, we'd need a lot of evidence for that. Like when the first studies came out saying that, they were like, probably not, we need a lot of evidence for that. Now, a lot of experts are like, actually it probably did. Like it probably did mutate very early on and become more contagious. And that may have explained in part why certain, why the outbreaks in like maybe New York and Northern Italy were worse than the outbreaks uh, um, in Wuhan like the very earliest stage of outbreak. Um, we, that's a great example of the scientific process at work because there was never a moment. We've just slowly learned that over time, but there's another part of the scientific process, which is like a translation of knowledge into recommendations. And I think what we've seen is that the translation of knowledge into recommendations and guidance is itself like super political and um, is a much more fraught process and in some ways a much more, more like like a, a, a point when things can go wrong <laughs> much more than just the translate just the scientific process itself and in part, what happens is like scientists get nervous about exposing how much they don't know about the virus to people. And so then they kind of like cover it up and they issue a recommendation that they, later they have to reverse. Yeah, I mean, I, so I have a question about these recommendations. Um, I remember like really early in the pandemic, you even had like, you actually had a lot of liberals making mistakes on this. So I, I, for instance, I remember uh, Mayor Garcetti mocking individuals who went to the beach on Twitter, despite the beach like winding up being a relatively safe activity uh, and generally like just discouraging outdoor activity. Uh, and I almost felt like that stressing of uh, uh, personal responsibility in communications um, is a, a symptom of Americans emphasis on personal freedoms um, as opposed to like a response in like South Korea uh, or Singapore that's like much more about the collective action of it. Uh, so do you think like American failure on these kinds of collective problems is like endemic to the culture or the political culture of the country? Um, it's an interesting question. I, 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 well, there's another liberal reversal here that happened too, which is that in the fall, sorry, in the early February, people were saying, oh, don't worry about it, including experts, like real public health experts who are great. I'm not, the message from public health experts in early February, right, was like, don't worry about it. The flu is worse. Then six weeks later, that became the COVID denial line. 
I mean, there was this kind of moment where like the COVID denial line was like exactly what experts had been saying six weeks earlier. Yes. Because at that point, right, experts were like, well, don't worry about masks. And then six weeks later, it was like, actually, masks are good. And the COVID denial line is like, was like, oh, don't worry about masks. <laughs> so, the state. You know, yeah, exactly. Now that has like, uh, that's, that's kind of like smoothed out. Um, that was like a phenomenon in part of how fast the information environment and like the world was changing during those first three months of the pandemic. Um, but um, I, I mean, Sully, to your question, I think like, there's kind of two different things happening there. I mean, I think first, we didn't know a lot too. So initially it was kind of like, well, why, it made sense to trash outdoor activity when we thought it was more surface spread. And only when we realized it was about ventilation and like swapping air, did it become clear that it was actually, um, that outdoor activity was okay then a lot of people held on to this, to kind of shaming for, long, for a long time. I'd say there's almost like two things happening here. The first, like when I think about Garcetti discouraging beaches, that almost emerges from like the liberal version of abstinence only sex education. Right? We all have to suffer a little bit. <laughs> like people can't be having fun. The beach is fun. This is a pandemic. You can't have fun. Um, when in fact it turned out like the beach is like really, very safe. Um, and about uh, almost as safe as you can imagine. In terms of emphasis on personal responsibility, lead us astray, there's like two answers here. I think to some degree, we have a very denuded language for talking about how the pandemic functions because it was immediately translated into personal responsibility. When like the whole problem with the pandemic is that like, it can be personally make sense for you actually to completely ignore pandemic restrictions. It's just that that could have catastrophic effects on someone else. It was classic externality. Um, class, I, I think the other issue here, the deeper issue is like, we actually did mount an incredible collective response to the pandemic in the beginning. Like the CARES Act, you probably covered this on other podcasts, but like CARES Act, amazing piece of legislation, like amazing collective, um, collective response to the pandemic and in some ways like in line with great historic pieces of legislation because contrary to like how things seem to play out a ton of there's a you know like when you think about the new deal a lot of what characterized the new deal was just like throwing a ton of policies at the wall and seeing what worked and that's what the cares act was i'm not saying the cares act was like new deal level but like what we learned is that like the 600 unemployment bonus was amazing. It was a completely amazing policy. Like we should emphasize it in the future. What happened was like that enabled a ton of collective action really early on because the government made it possible, right? Like our state entities reflecting the will of us, the collective took policy actions that made it possible for us to collectively respond to the pandemic. What then happened is like a lot of those programs expired and we have been hampered. When I think of Americans' failure to respond collectively to the pandemic, I think that's much more at the federal level um, and driven by like Congress's failure to pass more stimulus and recovery legislation than it is driven by local leaders who are trying to make the best of like a pretty bad situation. Um, 
And to some degree, I do wonder if like, I mean, if you think, I don't know what your lockdowns were like or what this period of time that we're calling the lockdown, even though it wasn't really a lockdown in the European sense. I don't know what your Marches and Aprils were like, but like, you know, in DC, it was amazing. If you think back to the spring, it was kind of amazing. You went outside, like things were, nature was louder. <laughs> um, uh, people weren't working. People suddenly had money. They could like take time. There was this vision there was this moment when we saw when like suddenly people i mean if you read reddit like unemployment reddit during this time suddenly <laughs> people like creativity they could pay up. to improve their them, themselves they could pay to like do things they wanted to do because they had finally like enough money to like get their life in order because of the unemployment bonus or because of the stimulus check or, or whatever and they did it and and i think one thing I've wondered, and now at the same time, the spring was an awful time. I mean, I covered it. I, like relatives died, you know, like my relatives, like we, it was a very bad period of time and it was awful and scary. At the same time, it was like a real collective moment of response to this that did prevent the pandemic from getting worse at that moment. And it saved a lot of lives because it allowed us to delay a lot of those deaths further down to now we're better at treating it. It allowed us to avoid a lot of the illness that would have happened then because now we know about masks, for instance, social distancing. It was a real collective response and it was enabled by federal policy. And as the federal government has refused to, or as Congress and the Senate has really refused to pass more recovery, I have wondered how much was such an incredible moment of collective response that like it can't be repeated. <laughs> that like it can't be allowed to happen again. It would be too, too, uh, too revolutionary. Or something. So yeah, a long and, answer, but yeah, kind of just to like shift to the the more cultural side of the the COVID response. I mean, we've seen a little bit. I guess conservative media has kind of seized on this sort of liberal hypocrisy in like either in media or just by government figures. Like we've seen Gavin Newsom go out and have a private dinner last month. Um, like a lot of people were very upset with the the black lives matter protests not following covid rules and people in, in media and government especially kind of turning a blind eye to that also recently there was a piece in the new york times i think by farhad manju which kind of did a very detailed um tracking of his contacts and then it and ended with him deciding to go to thanksgiving anyway um so this kind of tone deafness is still uh, rounding and round in, in media and in, in politics so how, uh, with your staff in the Atlantic, how do you, how do you like navigate this sort of um, blindness and do you like kind of have an awareness of, of this going on or is it like just something you kind of consciously try to do, avoid as an individual? I mean, like, I think there's a difference between what, first of all, I think there's a difference with the Farhad column and um, the news and stuff. Although I, I, I'm still a little unclear whether Newsom was actually like in spiritual violation, like he was clearly in spiritual violation of the guidelines. It's unclear to me if he was actually in real violation because I think they were outside. Um, the Black Lives Matter stuff is a great example. Um, the protests, though, of what is an interesting question. I, I, I guess I think like
these things were all a little frustrating for different reasons. <laughs> Rob, um, perhaps perhaps yeah. maybe I could, I could zoom in a little bit. I just add on a little bit to, to Neil's question. What, what I think what I've personally seen is that the narratives couldn't keep up anymore because it seems that you have one narrative that's saying uh, you should not have outdoor gatherings and activities and Trump's rally shouldn't happen. But then you say, wait a second, but Black Lives Matter is such an important institutional issue that people really have to go on the street. I think that's right, that there's real narrative collapse around like this whole thing. And it's narrative-driven journalism, it almost seems like. Well, and if you look like this Republican, the Republican official, Republican officials or lawmakers are skeptical of COVID stuff. If you look, they're like not actually even responding usually to their own party. Like anti-masking is like not a response usually to their own party it's a response to the majority in their party it's a response to like a fringe in their party so i think to some degree it kind of depends on when this stuff happens you know back during the protests back during the black lives matter protests for instance there was a lot of concern people some people were like no the protest should happen some people were like well it it they shouldn't happen well, the conservatives especially were like you know this is real hypocrisy they're getting together and then also public health people were like this is this <laughs> kind of waved away the damage. When if you looked what public health people were saying at the time was that this was gonna be very dangerous and was going to spread the virus. Now it turned out that it didn't. We like basically have very little evidence that it did. And if you look at the paper from those economists that said that the Black Lives Matter protest didn't spread the virus, they actually don't prove that the protests themselves didn't spread the virus. What they show is that in cities where there were protests, everyone else reduced their movement to a it's degree a that would counter results. Don't you think? It, it's, it's... I, I find it. Well, I also I mostly don't think it's an argument for or against the protest. Yes. It's just like well, when people feel happy. Look, uh, look at that. But yeah, it's like oh yes, great. Exactly. <laughs> well, when people cite that to me, who are arguing that the protests were fine, it's like well, sure. Except that actually, this doesn't even say that. But anyway, right. I think the issue. What happened is that we didn't really see spikes. And so I think to some degree, a lot of people walked away from that fairly and were like, well, actually probably a lot harder for the virus to spread outside, which I think has been vindicated by a lot of what we saw after that, which is people have continued to gather outside and there weren't large, you know, there, there weren't big spikes and we didn't see big spikes necessarily in, in cities that um, like held big outdoor celebrations either after the election. So then there were people who were getting angry about Trump, you know, and to some degree, sometimes it was like, well, you have to start getting specific, right? Like a lot of people were like, well, he's holding these pro protests outside without masks, which is different from the Black Lives Matter protests, or there were a few protests he held inside, you know? So um, uh, to some degree, part of what's happening here is that like, <laughs> we have transcended like the nuance level for a lot of being able to crit criticize this stuff um, and political media can't necessarily like always keep up with that uh, though I think actually individuals can and so it's been then you're in your class the classic situation of like you know storylines and the media like can't actually functionally report very well on the and can't functionally like report very well on what's actually happening. 
You know, I think something that you did for me in kind of the last 15 minutes is reframe my thinking because I was placing a lot of this on kind of incompetence in the Trump administration. Um, and, and you've kind of re-emphasized the importance of Congress just like doing its job and passing legislation. I think to that point, um, a big reason why you see this narrative breakdown now is that we both have these strong lockdowns and we have to keep businesses open because they like need income. Like they don't have yeah. money themselves and all the ways that they were able to stay functional through the spring yeah. and early summer are gone so I, I didn't really appreciate the extent to which congress was at the center of the of the cultural narrative on this as well i think that's right well i think a ton of this yes exactly like a ton of our inability to shut down comes down to congress not passing legislation that makes it possible to shut down and even when you if you're a small business owner looking at vaccination timelines if you say most people are going to be vaccinated by April, even then that means we're only two thirds of the way through, which is like agonizing from a small business perspective. So now a lot, ton of this is also on Trump because if Trump wanted the, a deal to happen, he could make it happen. I do think, you know, if Trump were to go out there and be like, we need to make a deal happen. And even what we saw in the spring was that Mnuchin, Trump and Pelosi can make the Senate come to the table. Um, well, then so, there's the question of whether the Democrats was betting on the blue wave. They, they wanted to, to wait for a bigger stimulus package and it didn't happen. Well, we don't have to go into the details, but. That's exactly right. I mean, I think. Uh, <laughs> should they have taken a $500 billion deal rather than a $2 trillion deal in October? Oh, yeah. Kind of looking like maybe they should have. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, <laughs> but, but but I think I guess yeah, I guess what's you know, something here that a lot of Democrat stuff like Democrats made a number of bets this time. Um, I think to, House Democrats made a number of political bets that were like, well, Republicans were never blamed for what they did during Obama, so we won't be blamed for what we we do under Trump. And I I think it's I don't know looking at this election result whether that's <laughs> correct or not. <laughs> I guess what Saudi was saying is kind of a uh, getting at a bigger question here, which is the narrative collapse, the narrative breakdown surrounding the government action, because we still don't know whether to federalize the decision or not. We still haven't really debated through the, the trade-offs between economics and public health as a society. We, we don't have answers to those questions. And when the narratives emerge, the central government does not know how to respond. Yes, though, this is part of a thing. This is the, like, there has been an assumed trade-off between economics and public health. And I heard a ton of economists who I talked to, economists who I respect, assert this trade-off a priori, like early in the pandemic. Oh, well, you know, there's a trade-off between public health here and economics. When in fact, what we've seen around the world, now the U.S. has like kind of defied this, or the U.S. has been in a funny place because we didn't really in some way kind down. of stands out know. from this trend. But when you look around the world, what you do not see is a trade-off between economics and public health. What you see is that countries that took public health mega seriously are now doing better economically. 
Well, Rob, that's, a, that's a, I guess, a more nuanced conversation because if you went into very stringent lockdowns initially and completely eliminated the virus, then you can completely go back to normalcy. But for the U.S., to, there's no point of going back to lockdown anymore because now for U.S. to go into lockdown or shut down small business is just pure economic pain because shutting this down does not prevent, does not eliminate the virus. Like the U.S. Yes. could go back to lockdown for two weeks. It doesn't matter. Well, the U.S. could go, yes and no, the U.S. could go into, well, Yes, but the point here is like, well, what's the point of a lockdown? Is the point to eliminate the virus or the point to, to prevent excess death? And in some ways it does matter now because we are going to eliminate the virus anyway. People, the vaccinations are probably going to start in two weeks from the time we're recording this podcast. Um, it's possible that by February between people, between a combination of the 13 million folks who have gotten sick and probably at that point, the 10 to 30 million people who will be vaccinated will have started to have immunity in a fairly, enough of the population to kind of slow down infection. So, and the issue now is that hospitals are getting overwhelmed. So if we were to lock down now, to some degree, all we have to do is just kind of like hold things down and we have to prevent excess deaths that would result from overwhelmed hospital systems, which we are gonna see. And we just have to kick cans we have to kick deaths further down because we have to kick infections like into six weeks from now because we can see the end of the road. And even if all we're trying to do with our policy is kick the can down the road, if you kick the can to the end of the road, you win. <laughs> so I think part of what's happening, but we can't do that because of Congress, right? So I think there are two things that happened. There was never full agreement on whether we we're trying to suppress the virus enough to avoid hospital system overwhelmed or whether we were trying to completely eradicate the virus. Um, though I think confusion on this mostly came at the polit political level, not at the kind of expert level. And I think we, to, to some degree now the question's a little different because the question about locking down now is not, would you, because time is actually different now than it was in July. Like you can lock down, if we were to fund a lockdown for our country for six weeks, we could start to hit the end of the pandemic period because we just suppressed the virus enough that like vaccinations would take over and that would be that. Would be bad. So I just, I think you're right. I just wanted to like complicate this because the discussion of like how a lockdown would work in theory is actually different, different kind of during a uh, out of time pandemic discussion than it is now because we can see the end of the road now. Yeah, I mean, I think that you uh, are kind of addressing kind of this existential questions regarding, uh, you know, catastrophes and American public response to it, and also like kind of our personal role in it. Um, and the original plan here was to go into some climate, but I think I just want to hear a little bit about your approach to climate change and mostly how that was influenced by, you know, now six months of reporting COVID. Like has your, has your shift, has your vision of climate change shifted based on your reporting of, of COVID? Well, I'd say that something that I really have come to believe that I didn't know or that 
I suspect it was true of climate change, but I think it's really true of COVID, which is exactly what you were just saying, which is that we don't solve problems like COVID or climate change. We are going to manage our way through them, right? Climate change is going to happen for decades, you know? So it's never going to be like we solve it. It's never going to be like we have the optimal climate change strategy. It's going to be like we do something, then we do something else, then we do something else, then we learn from that, then we do something else. Just like how it's been with COVID. And COVID is like much shorter than climate change. Like we can see the end of COVID in sight. Um, and yet still for big problems like this, you don't solve them, you manage through them. And in fact, this is like how everything is. It's just that we, because we view everything in retrospect, <laughs> we view it all like we didn't solve World War II. We just managed through it and we did stuff and it turned out like the US did stuff, right? And it like turned out that like the collective amount of stuff it did was like enough to defeat like the Nazis in Japan in like for, with the collective amount of stuff that they did, right? Like everyone's just managing through this. And there was a ton of debate as it was happening about whether we were doing enough or not enough. You know, so that is like, we just managed our way through crises. And I think to some degree, we're all underserved by this idea that we will solve any of this um, or that there will be one policy and then we're done. For climate change, what that means is that like you have to build policies that are enduring and that support each other and that build up a coalition that then continues to support those policies because we're gonna need to, because we're gonna be passing climate policy. We need climate policy now, we need climate policy in five years, we need climate policy in 15 years. And we don't know the climate policy that we'll need in 15 years exactly. All that we know is that we'll need to be able to pass it then. <laughs> we'll need to be able to do, do it then. And so we best be able to, we, we should think about how to do climate policy now in such a way that we have our hands free in the future to keep doing climate policy. Um, I think no. what I've learned honestly to just like target answer your question instead of ramble around it is that if you look at COVID, there were a number of ways we could have solved COVID. We could have solved COVID through vaccines. We could have solved COVID through distributing masks to everyone like really high quality masks and mandating everyone wear them. We could have solved COVID through distributing ventilation to everyone. Um, there's a ton of different ways we could have addressed COVID. And the way we addressed it was vaccines. Yeah. And the reason we addressed it through vaccines is because there was a vaccine plan off the shelf. Like the government had thought about how it was going to rapidly scale up vaccine production in an emergency and then that's what it did. And there were certain things that were agreed on, like we would mass produce vaccines before they received FDA approval. We didn't do that for tests. We haven't done that for masks. And that we only did that because there were plans that were sitting there in a crisis. And so there's a lot of discussion in climate change of like, if climate change got really bad, wouldn't we just devise some fix for it and solve it then? And there are like thermodynamic reasons why you can't quite do that for climate change in the same way. But what we should also learn is that we're only, <laughs> we were only able to do that for COVID because we had the plan off the shelf. We didn't do it for masks. We didn't do it for tests. We only did it for vaccines because the plan was sitting there. And unless we have technologies or plans off the shelf for climate change that are sitting there and we kind of think through what problems we may encounter under climate change 
then we are just never going to be able to formulate a policy response fast enough because it's just to to a really catastrophic crisis for instance to a to a like extremely sustained drought or something or or heat wave or yeah yeah so you're not a, a political correspondent i want to circle back around the political situation but you have done a lot of work um in climate politics and i i sometimes wonder whether the issue with the progressive movement in in the 21st century is that we're is that it always views like the next election as the end game like i think of that end game video where like every every character has like a, a democratic politician head right uh, yeah. it's like everything is the last battle and if we only get this piece of legislation through this is going to solve the problem it's like this is a two trillion dollar piece of legislation whereas i think republicans see it as a constant fight against progress to some extent and they're always willing to go down to the dirt <laughs> for it. and so i wonder do you think that if there's like this uh, a cultural shift that has to happen within the progressive movement um in order to kind of better address these these existential questions yeah so well, i think oh no so, please so, sorry rob no please all good <laughs> i think like one thing is I think one reason for this is because there's been this idea in the Democratic Party for 12 years, basically since Obama won, and honestly since 2006, that Democrats like had the future. They were going to own the future, right? And in the future, like always kind of two cycles away, there was going to be this incredible Democratic coalition of like educated white people, uh, thin minority, like thin majorities of like white women maybe and then like people of color and this was going to be an unstoppable electoral force that would come out to support the democrats always and because of this there were ideas like um the when more people turn out democrats win um when and that uh we just kind of if like the whole political system just waits then like democrats will eventually like win everywhere that's not true <laughs> we just had the highest turnout election in like a century and democrats barely won the uh, Democrats comfortably won the presidency but they only barely won the house and they didn't take the senate and there's a number of reasons for this that we can get into but like what we definitely didn't see is that when more people came out democrats won it turns out there's a ton of Republican voters out there who also come out. And if you make it easier to vote, actually a ton of voters from both parties come out. And I think what both parties have actually internalized is that Democrats kind of are going to win this big governing majority in the future. And I think that has led Democrats in power to be much more conservative than they would have been otherwise conservative in the small c sense conservative in the, like not wanting to rock the boat not wanting to like do big stuff because they always have this majority that's like just about to come <laughs> like they're always just about to get this majority and i one thing i do hope for this election because i actually think it would make all of american politics function better is the democrats get over that idea there is no magical majority that's coming to save the democratic party in the future they have to make things better for people and then people will vote for them and if they don't then people won't vote for them <laughs> um another thing i do wonder with climate politics specifically is that 
climate politics doesn't really have you can see this with the fights now over the Biden administration between different kinds of climate activists and different kinds of climate advocates. You know, climate doesn't have interests in the same way. We can't, people who like climate, who want to fight climate change actually can't always dependably well, look, everyone can say, look, the benefit of fighting climate change is that climate change would be very bad. We don't want it to happen in the future. But you can't actually like horse trade around that necessarily. And people have different ideas that they attach to actually trying to solve climate change. There's this famous political scientist, I think named Steve Rayner, who talks about how climate policy is like a Christmas tree because you can hang anything on it that you want to. Um, and, you know, to some degree, there's a disagreement among climate advocates about whether we should be, you know, whether climate advocates should be hanging a ton on it, but that's kind of the Green New Deal approach, or whether they should be trying to get focused climate policies through that, that don't do that. Um, unlike other movements, or unlike even other constituencies of the Democratic Party, you know, if you ask, like, what do workers want? What does the labor movement want? better wages, you make it easier to unionize, more favorable NRLB rulings. If you ask um, um, what does what does any other group want, right? Like <laughs> higher wages, or like if you ask what does what does this new civil rights movement want? Easier to vote, new VRA, right? Like we're able to kind of name interests what does um, LGBT movement want? Um, like no discrimination against trans folks, um, broader protections for for uh, you know lesbians, gays, and queer people, right? Like we know ending conversion therapy, right? We're able to name wins. We're able to name interests that would materially improve the lives of those coalitions, like those groups that are in the Democratic coalition. I am less sure that we're able to name, that climate advocates are able to name what their interests are. To some degree, what they want is like more climate stuff. But because because formulating how we're going to solve climate change re requires formulating like a global theory of change. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I want to wrap up here with kind of a broader question encompasses a lot of these themes. So I think America has like a dueling impulses of national catastrophes. So on the one hand, you get like the rhetoric around like 9-11 or Pearl Harbor, which stresses remembrance. And on the other hand, we get this popular discussion around public health crises and genocides and civil rights disasters that would paint America in a bad light that we kind of, you know, grace over or skip over. Uh, and then there's also, um, you wrote about this article I believe in August, or you wrote this article in August, kind of talking about America getting hit with these increasing waves of, of catastrophes, right? Where you get the, the, the storms in the Gulf Coast and, and the wildfires and continuing pandemic. Um, and it seems like America has a capacity to normalize disasters that both cause an expected amount of death, where the death and destruction is like projected and can be normalized 
and also disasters that paint America in a bad light. Um, so this may not be an extremely hopeful way to wrap up, but do you, can you imagine a future in which America has things like pandemics and, and you know, symptoms of climate change and we kind of normalize it rather than addressing it? I mean, we're kind of in it right now. Yeah. Yes. If the, if, if the question is like, can we imagine a world where there's big disasters that happen and America is unable to mount a coherent response to it? Yes, I can. Be because we were kind of in it. And because it's easy to imagine how it keeps getting worse. I think probably the, you know, the, um, the question I'm curious about is like, what lessons are we going to learn as a country from this pandemic? Like we did, there were lessons that were taken away, I think on a fairly bipartisan basis from 9-11, for instance, that um, have persevered and become part of policy and like no one is particularly exercised about them anymore. This is apart from any drone war or surveillance stuff. I think this is even about just like, you know, what should American national security priorities be? Um, and it wasn't like there was no debate about them, but they were just internalized. I think a question is like, what lessons do we now take as a country from the pandemic? And, and what lessons also is the Republican party allowed to take from the pandemic? Because a very normal way this would wrap up is like, look, we get vaccines. And then in a year from now, just like a different slate of federal policies and federal programs get funded and spin up than would get funded otherwise because like everyone wants them to spin up and kind of everyone agrees they should spin up even, you know, the Republican Senate uh, because who, you know, business interests want them to spin up too. I'm curious to see whether that is going to happen now or whether the kind of idea that we responded well to the pandemic is going to take hold. And like the idea that you can't criticize our pandemic response so that we, there wouldn't even be a lockdown next pandemic is gonna, is gonna take hold. Um, are, are you optimistic, yeah. Rob? Are, are you optimistic? It sounds like very... About what? <laughs> About where, the country is headed, especially when it comes to issues of climate change, science, biohacking, future of biological warfare, oh, I'm not how prepared very we are. worried about that. All these um, things. Be because yeah. so, so, uh, no, I'm not, I, I mean, if there's, if there's more in a climate sense, what I would say is like, I'm not optimistic, I'm not pessimistic. I don't have, in climate, I don't think it's particularly helpful to be one or the other. There's a lot of signs that are encouraging there's a lot of bad stuff happening to some degree climate change is getting worse much worse much faster than we thought it would um but if you think that climate change is worth fighting and worth pressing against 
then it doesn't matter whether you're optimistic or pessimistic because you think it's worth it. And I think it's worth it. I think it would be really, really bad for climate change to happen um, in an uncontrolled way, in a completely you know, runaway cat catastrophic way. We're gonna get some of it no matter what, but I think catastrophic climate change would be really bad. Um, and it would be bad on the merits. And so it doesn't matter whether I think it's particularly hopeful or non-hopeful at any one moment. And to be honest, I've vacillated between the two over the five years I've covered it. Um, what matters is that um, if it's worth fighting, then it's worth fighting. And I think ditto, and I don't feel qualified to answer the kind of larger set of questions. Um, but what I do think is like, if we think it's worth fighting to make America's pandemic response better, then it's worth it. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter if we're optimistic or pessimistic or, or whatever. It's just like, is it worth it? And I think it is. So it's worth it. Rob, we also talked for, for a while already. I thought maybe we should wrap up here, I guess. Um, one last question. I keep going I, a little bit, but yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, one last question I have is, uh, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, what would your punchline be for this COVID-19? Like what's the, what's the end line? What's the, what's yeah, the, the, the takeaway that you think our listeners should walk away from. Um, <laughs> Very big question, but you can take it however you want. It can be as small or large as you wish. Hmm. about the COVID-19 Well, here's, here's what I'd say, you know, already right now, United Airlines is, fly, is positioning vaccines around the country. These are vaccines that aren't approved yet, they're the Pfizer vaccine. They aren't approved yet, but they're positioned around the country right now, like it's running charter flights right now to yeah. make sure that the second that it's approved, it will be able to give out the vaccine as quickly as possible. What we've seen is that there is a ton of state capacity it, and you could look at what happened with the CARES Act too. I mean, amazing, amazing progressive legislation that was actually implemented okay. Ditto the stuff the Fed has done over the past year. You know, like there's a ton of state capacity um, in the US. It is going to do amazing things in the next six months. It really is. Like we're gonna get vaccines, it's gonna work. I, I, Trump I, will I, use the military. <laughs> Well, but even look at the military, right? Like the military weeks, has remained. Have it. <laughs> the military has remained a fairly. There, there's a ton of of state capacity left there too. There's a ton of capacity in the government, and what we're seeing is our political system is really in in crisis, but we are not seeing the actual governance. In crisis, we're seeing the political system like slowly messing up the rest of the government, but it's not like we have a dysfunctional government. Um, the question is, how do we wield and point all that good state capacity that we have and public, let's say, capacity for the public good, because a lot of it is in companies? How do we point that toward? Um, helping people 
at all times and not just now <laughs> and not just for this one vaccine thing. How do we make that serve people, you know, in the course of normal life? Um, because that is, I think, what we need more of. And like, that's the only way we're going to fight climate change. And so, um, the, the question for me is almost like, well, why did some of these bureaucracies fail? Why did we never get masks? Why did we mask, mass produce masks? Why did we never get mass produce tests? But why did we get, why is it, does it seem like we're going to get mass produced vaccines? And I think if we could answer that question, we'd be a lot, we'd be a lot better off as a country, but I can't answer it for you. <laughs> Well, Rob, it's been a great conversation. It's very rare that we get to talk with the guests for this long and have <laughs> this kind of a deep conversation. You know, we got to focus two during holiday weekends. Yes, this is this is wonderful. So, I mean, thanks so much for for being here with Neil and Sully and me for for talking about COVID. I mean, the last COVID nineteen interview we did was was back in the summer. So, this is really truly a great sort of overview of of what happened. So, so thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, thank you for having me. And Neil Tully, this was your first uh, Policy Punchline interview. Did you guys enjoy it? I hope uh, you liked it. So. Yeah, no, it was great. Thanks for having us. And thank you, Rob, for coming again. Really appreciate it. Of course. It. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you, um, Tiger, and thank you, Rob, as well. Well, so this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us on policypunchline.com. Visit us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. And also, uh, one last plug for Rob and the COVID-19 project. Rob, how can people learn more about your work? And uh... Uh, Well, they should go to my Twitter, at Yayasrob, Y-A-Y-I-T-S-R-O-B, Yayasrob, or go to COVID tracking. Um, and I can have this plug down. You can see I just don't even have to think about this anymore. They should go to covidtracking.com. <laughs> Uh, that's COVID tracking, one word, dot com. And if they want to volunteer, and there's a number of Princeton students actually who are big, big volunteers, very helpful um, to our project, um, great leaders. Uh, they, there's, a, there's a button on the website where folks can volunteer and there's still, there's still a lot to do. So um, if, you're, if any listeners are interested in COVID tracking project, they should, they should log on and, and uh, volunteer. If, if you're interested in doing the work that CDC is doing, but you do it, <laughs> basically run the whole thing and, and uh, help help run the markets and the country. So you should totally get in touch with, with Rob. So. <laughs> well, you know, it's very rare you get to do something that is directly touches the problem for so many people. And that is just form such a basis of how people understand the world. And that is, and the whole premise of journalism is that like, if you give people better information, they'll make choices you may not agree they'll make better choices you may not agree with the choices but they'll be better than they were otherwise and it's their you know their that's their right and and so it's rare you get to be in such a kind of core aspect of that and be able to do so much good on that front and so folks should volunteer if they're interested truly truly mean, meaningful work rob thanks so much again for joining us today really absolutely thank you for having me You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. 
We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.